The Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast is a deep dive interview series with musicians, artists, conduits, collectors, and dedicated fans, focusing on 20th century Connecticut music history. This project preserves narratives, heralds unsung movers and shakers, and defines Connecticut's influential role in cultural history. I'm your host, Brendan Toller. I'm an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, and marketing manager of the incredible Verso Studios at the Westport Library, where this very podcast is being produced. Verso Studios is a media resource and production hub, serving as an inclusive, empowered, future-forward cultural and learning center. A library branch of the 21st century, Verso Studios provides programming, commercial services, as well as educational and content creation opportunities. We have a state-of-the-art hybrid analog recording studio designed in part by Rob Froboni, the same guy who built Keith Richards' home studio down the road. We record bands, artists, audiobooks, podcasts, and everything in between. We have video production suites, classes, and events. Check us out at the Verso Studios website and on social media. I'm very excited to have my pal Frank Rotelli on the Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast. Frank Rotelli writes songs and often performs live many times solo and sometimes accompanied by one or more musical co-conspirators. For over 30 years, Frank's played in streets and subways, clubs and coffee houses, barrooms, classrooms, colleges, festivals, theaters, and in his kitchen. Frank Rutelli is the co-host of the local band show on 99.1 FM, WPLR New Haven, and CygnusRadio.com with Rick Allison. Let's hear the first real song Frank ever wrote from his 1991 cassette, Re-recorded in 2000, this is Frank Rotelli with Picture.
things leveled for a shopping mall Picture a village and then a town, now a city Tell me which of these would you rather make your home? And picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees Marmalade skies, somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly Oh yeah, perfect. All right, comfortable. Yeah. yeah, it's a nice room. Yeah, we're in the Verso Studios SSL control room. So, um, yeah, I'm here with Frank Rutelli, and yeah, we'll just get started. Uh, so, I guess first question would be, you know, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And um, how did music come into the picture? Um, I grew up in Levittown, New York. Uh, I'm the child of, you know, a single parent family. Um, I was abandoned by my father when I was five. And I think that um, music for me was something that always felt like it was there. Um, I sang songs at a very early age that I made up. Um, I was a stutterer as a child. And I remember seeing Mel Tillis on TV. It might have been the show Hee Haw. And he was a wicked stutterer. You know, he was like Porky Pig. And he sang a song and he didn't stutter. And I looked at my mom and I'm like, w -w what happened? You know? And she's like, well, you don't stutter when you sing, you know? So, um, I started to sing to myself, you know, and kind of, I still stammer over my words every now and then. Um, sometimes people pick it up or when I get nervous or anxious, I, you know, I tend to stutter, but, uh, singing for me was a way to not stutter. And like those guys on, like when I was growing up, like, you know, Hee Haw was a musical show for me, or the Sonny and Cher show, or Tony Orlando and Dawn, or even on Saturday morning television, it was like the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Hour. So I just felt like I was always surrounded by um, music on TV, you know? Mm-hmm. And what, what, was immediately attracted to it. What music was grabbing you then, though? Um, that stuff as a little kid, um, but I got to say that uh, there were two events that really sort of pushed me in the right direction. Uh, when I was a kid, around seven or eight, I used to do like little odd jobs around the neighborhood, you know. And the guy diagonally across the street from us was Mr. Holmes, who was putting out a bunch of stuff to special pickup from his garage. So I would take the stuff out of the garage and put it on the curb. That was the job for today, you know. And he's like, I can take any of that junk, you know what I mean? And he had a bunch of records and milk crates. So I took a bunch of his records, you know. And the one that I remember the best um, was uh, Meet the Beatles because it was just those floating heads on the record sleeve, you know? And I was like, wow, you know, and, and Lennon's chubby cheeks at that time, you know? 
and I just remember that record particularly um, that meant a lot to me. And uh, the first record I ever bought, I was around the same time, probably with money that I made from Mr. Holmes, you know, um, at Times Square store on uh, Jerusalem Avenue. In, no, excuse me, it was Hempstead Turnpike in Levittown, New York. And they had a record store in this, uh, you know, department store. So I would go to the record store while my mom was in the grocery store. And uh, I picked out a 45, and it was Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry, which, of course, is older than me, but, um, but I picked it up. And I brought it over, you know, and uh, the hippie behind the counter is like, oh, man, you got some Chuck Berry there, little man, you know? He goes, you got a spider? And I didn't know what he was talking about, you know? Um, he's like, you know, you need, a, you need something to go in the hole so you can put it on the, on the turntable, you know? And uh, he's like, I'll throw one in the bag for you, you know? And uh, I remember I, I took it home and I, I played it ad nauseum. I probably played it 75 times in a row, you know? And my mother said, why did you buy that record? And I said, I didn't know, you know? And she said, uh, your father used to sing that to you in the womb. Whoa. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> so you had that kind of... I've had <clears throat> Maybe. That, I've had I don't really know, you know. happened but, once to me when uh, it was like this random thing that I ended up seeing Stevie Wonder, and I, I had... I was like crying, and I was like, yeah. why, why are you crying? And it was definitely because <laughs> I know my parents were listening to that music yeah. during their courtship, and then, you know... It when somehow registered. Yeah, yeah. Imagine? Yeah. yeah. That's what music does, you know. It registers with people. It, I don't, you know, maybe it's because of the circles we run in, like we said before, but um, I don't know anybody who's not turned on by some sort of music. It's a universal language, and uh, for me, it was, you know, it hit me like a fist really early in my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I realize it comes to people, and it's redefined at different points that, in your life, but when did that sort of, like, oh, this is what I'm going to do, or at least... I'm going to be a lifer at this. When did that come into play? Or, or you know, even maybe the uh, a guitar came in or some sort of instrument? Um, just about immediately, you know. Um, I used to imagine myself and fantasize that I was Tony Orlando, you know, because I had a total crush on Dawn, both of them. And, uh, you know, so I, I imagined myself as that guy. As I got a little bit older, um, you know, there was more poetry in the back of my math notebook than there were math problems, you know? So I think I come to music from a very lyrical place. And I picked up the guitar just as a vehicle for me to sing my words. Because I would sing to myself all the time anyway. You know what I mean? I would sing the stuff that I put in my notebook. I had melodies for it, you know? And when I figured out some chords on the guitar, because my friend Tim O'Connor played in a high school band, you know? Um, so I picked it up little bit by little bit just so that I could sing words. Wow. And what age was that? Yeah. Um, well, early high school, maybe right. 12, 13, 14, something like that. So would you say like you're, you're kind of uh, self-taught? Or? I've never taken a, a music lesson in my life. Um, and that's a shame because um, I'm not really that great of a guitar player. You know, I'm, I'm a strummer. I can hold a rhythm. I got a steady right hand. But I'm not, you know, flashy like some of those guys are, you know, like Jim Croce. He's got, you know, he's got chops. Like people have chops. I don't really have chops. I just, I'm just a strummer. What um, artists were like a big influence on you in terms of, you know, your style and approach, you think? I mean, and that, and that could be writers. It could be poets and, and anything, you know? Um, well, I remember riding my bicycle to a used record store called Titus Oaks, which was in the neighboring town. And I picked up 
uh, the first Cat Stevens record uh, when he turned to folk when he turned folky was Mona Bone Jakin, and it had this garbage can on the cover that was spitting, and I was attracted to the picture on the cover. And when I took it home, I didn't know what I had no idea what the music was like. And when I took it home, it was this acoustic singer songwritery type of stuff, and um, and it was just one guy. It wasn't the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. It was Cat Stevens, that guy. And I'm like, he doesn't really need anybody to do his songs. I mean, I didn't have anybody to do my songs, and I just wanted to do that. So uh, probably that record kind of pushed me into a, a more singer-songwriter sort of pursuit. Well, and it's uh, self-reliant. You don't need to, you don't need to rely on other musicians. To, well, that's the know? truth. You know, like I never really had, a, much until much later in life, I never really had anybody that I felt comfortable with saying, well, you want to play drums on my songs, you know? Um, but once, you know, once you get to be a little bit older and you find yourself in those circles, then there's other people who want to jam, you know? When did you discover sort of live and local music? Uh, when I was in college, I used to play at the bottom of my bed, you know what I mean? And about my college roommate was Mike Banks. And he was doing this uh, fundraising thing for the Haiti Project which was like a group of students from North Adams State College, which is now Mass College of Liberal Arts in North Adams, Mass. Um, he was raising money for this. And he's like, let's do a coffee house. You know, you could sing. I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. But I didn't really think he was serious. I didn't think it would ever come to fruition until I saw a bunch of signs around campus with a date and everything like that, you know. So that um, was my first, uh, you know, my first experience singing my, you know, singing some of my songs in a bunch of covers in front of a bunch of people, you know? And um, it was right then where I, I knew that A, I was an applause whore, and B, like, I'm, I feel comfortable here. Like, this is, this is me. Like, this feels like me. It, I put it on like a pair of shoes and, and it fit just fine, you know? And after college, I moved to Cambridge, Mass. And I immediately started playing on the street. And it was like, you know, a fraternity and sorority all rolled into one, you know. The minute you were walking around in Harvard Square with a guitar, you'd see other people and they'd wink at you, you know, like they'd give you the half wave, like because you were in, you know, the brother and sisterhood, you know. And uh, that was really my first taste of, um, I, I guess, sort of like your baptism by fire, you know. Singing in front of an appreciative audience is one thing. Singing in a train station or on the street with passersby and stuff and trying to get an audience that way is a little bit tougher but for a long time and maybe even still um you know trains would go by i i mean i could sing a song through anything i i didn't even have to necessarily hear myself to be able to know exactly where i was in the song and remain relatively on key and stuff like that yeah what what parts of it do you think um motivate you is it the process is it uh songwriting is it uh, a little bit the adoration is it getting to the gig is it everything it's everything but for me it, it's really the writing process i think i have the most fun uh writing songs you know especially now you know um you know i'm writing with some other people now i, I write with the bargain and muddy rivers and shandy lawson and sitting around my kitchen table and writing songs with these fellows has been the most satisfying and enlightening and challenging and wonderful experience I've had in writing songs. Before this, for the most part, I just, I did it in isolation, 
You know, I, I did it by myself at the same kitchen table, but I did it by myself, you know. And now we have pizza and beer and whiskey and, you know, we pass a joint around and, and there's a brotherhood involved in it. And I feel like I'm writing the best of, the best stuff of my life with the, in collaboration with these guys, you know. So it was always the writing for me. Um, when I stood in front of an audience, uh, there's that, you know. Like I always felt like, um, you know, I, I don't know is, if it's a forced charm or if it's acting. I guess there's a certain amount of theater when you host something, you know. Hey, everybody, like, you know, you have yes, to, you're yeah. the hype man. Yeah. You know, you got to get people involved and stuff like that. And I always felt comfortable in that role. So um, that part of it came natural to me as well. But the writing is, is my favorite. Yeah. When did Connecticut come into the picture? Um, after a couple of years of street performing in Cambridge and doing a bunch of gigs and getting some opening acts and playing some decent clubs, um, I, got I, I got afraid. You know, I looked at people who were doing the same thing that I was doing, but 25 years down the line. And what did that look like? Uh, looked like missing teeth and no health care. And, I mean, I ate in a soup kitchen every now and then, and I saw those guys eating in the same soup kitchen, and I was like, you know, that's a long time to have a rough life, you know? So I came to Connecticut to go to graduate school, um, which I went to Quinnipiac College. Uh, it's university now, but most of those buildings were piles of dirt when I was there, and I got a teaching degree, which I guess is the same idea. You know, I used to tell my musical friends, yeah, you know, I'm a teacher, but I do five shows a day <laughs> for a captive audience, you know? That's and right. The, the the performance aspect of being an English teacher uh, came naturally to me as well. And do you think that that helped your process? I mean, you're you're teaching literature every day, mm. right? And writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think one feeds off of the next. Right. You know, it's a slightly different hat, but they're similar. You know, and talking about literature all day and being surrounded by youthful energy. Um, really worked for me for a long time so when you're in connecticut what who are you checking out what clubs are you going to what's the scene like uh, all that the first name i saw i got here around 91 mm -hmm. give or take yeah and the first name i saw in the new haven advocate was james velvet um and i saw it all the time and i was like that guy's got it going on you know like i want to be like that guy you know so i went to see him play a bunch um my first gig in connecticut was at christopher martin's you know, as a solo guy. Now, I, I gave him the cassette that I made. I had a 10-song cassette when I was in Cambridge. And they knew what I did, you know, and it was the worst show ever. I mean, it sucked. I was terrible. Um, everybody hated me. It was, it was the worst ever, you know. I felt bad taking their money. I took their money, but I felt bad doing it. And I just kind of put it down for like six months, you know. And then I walked into the Daily Cafe on Elm Street. It's now a taco joint with a stupid name, I think, you know. Yale Taco or mm -hmm. something. Dumb. So it was on Broadway, kind of? Yeah, kind of across from where X and O is now. Okay. You know, right by that little park where you come out. Of, if you make a right out of three sheets and you go to the next corner. Yeah. Um, then that next light, the Daily okay. Cafe was right yeah. there. And a duo was playing at the Daily Cafe named Quay and O'Connor. And I had opened up for them in Cambridge at uh, Club Passine on Palmer Street. It's a classic club, you know. And I walked in with my cassette, and Steve Shapiro was behind, you know, the counter. And I said, hi, um, you know, Quain O'Connor are playing here next week. You know, this is my stuff. I'd like to open for them. And he goes, 
who are you? I said, my name is Frank. And he goes, who's Quayne O'Connor? You know, I'm like, just, just let me open, you know? He let me open and it was a totally different story than Christopher Martin's. Um, I had found like my little niche um, and I wound up booking a series there for two years. Wow. It was a, thir a Thursday series and we had a bunch of music come through there. We had some great shows. Was it the first time you were booking shows? Or you'd been first time that? ever booking shows. And, and what's that like? I think, I think people, I mean, I've been on every sort of aspect of it because I think if you're that involved, it's inevitable. Like it's you're you're headed for that iceberg. Like if you if you're if you're really involved in local music and you have a local band, oh obviously you have a local band. But if you're a real fan, you just you get into it at all levels. So what what's that like booking shows? Um, it's a nightmare, a beautiful nightmare, you know. Um, but it's that's not true for everybody. It's true for guys like you and me. Um, and I've always respected people who not only uh, took from the scene as a as an artist, but also provided other artists with an opportunity to share their art, you know, and that's what James Velvet did. You know, he had, um, he booked a lot of series as well. He, one of his better ones and one of his, my favorite one was called Maximum Minstrels, which was on Coffee with a K on Audubon Street. And it was really great, you know. And I just, I always wanted to do that sort of stuff. What was great about it? Would he just pair with people? Ooh, hold it, on. Let me fix that. The lights went out. Yeah, we're that, we're that still. Oh, hold my on. goodness. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you go. just got to <laughs> kick your, your feet a little. I'll do that every now and then. I'll kick my feet up. Yeah. Um, it was a real listening audience. And it was focused on the songwriter. And it was an original series, you know. And it was, it was great. A bunch of people all sitting in chairs, drinking coffee, faced in your direction. And you got to talk to them and sing songs for them, you know, and they would clap at the end. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's, that was what it was all about for me. You know? Yeah. How, how would you describe, um, well, I mean, James Velvet's music and then him as a person, I guess. Uh, he was the king of the strum and sing scene when I was around here and for a really long time. I mean, decades, you know, uh, he knew everybody and everybody loved him. Um, what did he have a day job or anything like that? I don't know. Yeah, oh, you I, don't. You don't know. No, you of all really. people don't know. Well, oh. you know, he did odd jobs. I think he he worked for Best Video for a while. Like a lot of local musicians, like Jed Parrish from the Gravel Pit, worked at Best Video. So did Hank, Hank Hoffman owns it now. You know, um, so he worked there, and he would. There was a Dropbox. I remember on the Yale campus where people would could rent a video and then put it in a mailbox. So he'd go and pick up the videos and bring them back to the video store, stuff like that. Um, but I think, you know, he did radio. He did the local band show with Rick Allison. I'm sure he made a little bit of money from that. But other than that, I'm not really sure what he did during the day. Um, maybe walk the dog. So he was know. devoted. Yeah, yeah. He was a lifer, you know, a total, total lifer. Was he really prolific? I mean, it seemed like he was. Yes. Um, he might have told you a different story about... Um, his songwriting process and i'm sure there were ebbs and flows like in anybody's uh creativity you know um but he always seemed prolific to me and his songs were um deceptively complex to listen to them they sound simple and you're like oh, i could play that until you try to sit down and figure it out and then you're like holy cow like what is that chord like f demented or something you know you know f demented suspended fourth you know um he was really interesting, and he had a really interesting rhythm, um, and I just, you know, I just loved him.
I've always been averse to those money chords, but that's what makes the magic happen. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Doesn't um, Lou Reed talk about the secret chord and, uh, you know, and something else? Or even Leonard Cohen talks about you know, the secret chord. Yeah. Um, you know, so many people describe James Velvet as a mentor. And was that something that, like, it was an obvious thing that he was doing or you had no idea or... I mean, sometimes I think people, like, you know, you know that they're trying to steer you in a certain direction. They're trying to impart wisdom. But other people, I think it's just like, yeah, you're hanging out with me and I'm having a good time hanging out with you. And maybe I'm imparting some stuff on you, but we're just friends and we're hanging out. That's what it was like with James. If he imparted anything, I don't think he did it on purpose. Um, everybody looked up to him and not because he was 6'6", six, six, you know. Um, he was 6'6"? Six, six? He was big man. He was a big man. Yeah. He was a, he was a pr- when he walked into a room... You felt his pre- like even if you weren't looking in that direction, you felt like something happened. There's a disturbance in the force. Oh, James Velva came in. You know, um, he was a big guy and he was just special. Like he was one of those special people. You know, like you've you've seen those people. You know, and I've I've described this to you know to others. You know, like you're one of those people. Like Picasso would have painted you. You know, um, you know. If, if this was, you know, in the olden days, they they put a halo around your head because you just shine, you know, and that's what James Velvet was like. Yeah, I mean, when he had passed, uh, reading all the tributes to him, it was just so clear that he was a just a real pillar for a lot of songwriters in the scene, and he instilled confidence in so many people. Yeah, it was yeah. very giving. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, you know, he allowed. He provided opportunities for other people to share their art. So he was inspiring in that way. Um, you know, his output was very inspiring. His great, I mean, he did great shows. He had, The Mockingbirds was his band for a long time. And they had a 10, well, excuse me, a 12-year residency um, the last Saturday of every month at Cafe Nine. And they played on the floor up against the brick wall, you know. Um, there used to be uh, tables there, but there was a bench that, you know, you could... Uh, it was on a like a latch, and mm-hmm. it would kind of swing down up against the wall. And he'd be right there on the floor, and people would be standing three feet in front of him. You know, a lot of people too, and they were smoking hot. You know, and because they had that one gig every month, you know, and they always had something to rehearse for, and they got so tight and so great that it was just a knockdown dragout party once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're booking shows, uh, when does, you, you record stuff at some point, yeah? I, I hung around here for a little while, and then, uh, I visited a couple of studios, cause, you know, everybody had records, and I had put out two cassettes when I was living in Cambridge, cause that's what everybody did then, you know, they put out cassettes. Um, by 1996, around when I was, uh, you know, when, well, my record came out in 96, but um, in the year and a half before that, I was looking around for different studios to record a record, and I came upon a Reservoir Recording Studio, which was in Building H on Treadwell Street in Hamden, Connecticut, and it's now uh, the cellar on Treadwell. Uh, there was a recording studio in there, and if I'm not mistaken, Travis uh, worked there way back in the day, and I walked in, and I met Roger Arnold. Uh, and he was the engineer there, and we hit it off right away. And Norman Cross was the guy who owned the studio. He has since died. 
and uh, we recorded a record together of his poetry and some of his songs and stuff. And he was an amazing artist, you know. And there was this giant mural painted on the wall. So when I walked in, it was just a, you know, like a, a punch of color, you know. So I'm, I'm like, oh, this is an artist's place. I'm like, I want to hang around here, you know. And I'm like, wow, you know. And I'm talking to Norman. I'm like, who did this, you know? And he's like, oh, you know, that was, uh, that's my work. You know, here, here I am over here in the corner. And I look down, and there he is. Yeah, yeah, that's you. All right, you know. He painted his self-portrait in the corner of this, of this, of this uh, giant mural in the studio. So um, I recorded a record there, 12 songs, and it was called Two in the Afternoon, uh, which was a line from the Sphinx Riddle about what walks on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three legs at night. And were you proud of it? So, like sometimes at the first record, you're like, oh, man, my voice. Or, oh, like, um, really? <laughs> you know, and, and I know, and everybody who records music knows that in hindsight, you hate everything, or, you, or at least you see the flaws. And you think, I could have sung that better. Why didn't anybody tell me that harmony was off? That's a bad chord. You know, there's a buzz here or there. But I am proud of the songs. Sometimes even through um, a mediocre performance, I feel like you can see the worth of a song, you know? Um, so I always, I always thought that my songs were okay, you know? Like I was happy to be able to write them and, and thankful to be able to write them. So even though my performance may be limited, you know, um, I like the songs. So yeah, I was proud and in hindsight, embarrassed. <laughs> and was it you make a CD of it or yeah. uh, and then did yeah. people do like what do you what do you do to promote it then it's a lot of hit the road um you know back then there was no inter I we didn't have the internet you know so like you'd send a bunch out uh to booking agents and then you'd have to call them on Wednesday afternoon between 1 and 120 you know to catch try to catch them on the phone to get a gig there and it cost a bazillion dollars in you know postal fee and everything else to get gigs but that's how you did it you know and in the circles that i ran in i was still i could still do gigs in cambridge i could still go back there and do gigs there and the folky circles that i ran in they liked it you know and that was the one cd that i sold the most copies of you know it, i sold five thousand copies of that record which for an independent artist was kind of cool you know like for me it was cool but was now, that go time for you was that like i'm gonna make it as a musician kind of thing? Uh, no. You know, I mean, 5,000 copies over the span of four years or five years. That's still a lot. It's a little different than if you sell 5,000 copies in six months. You know what I mean? Um, and there were a lot of other people doing a lot more cool things than I was doing, you know? Like a lot of the people that I came up with doing open mics in Cambridge were Dar Williams, uh, Vance Gilbert, Ellis Paul, and all of those guys uh, made it to a much higher level than i did you know and like i said i got scared i went back to school i had you know my attention was split you know what i mean i didn't give myself to it fully and if i have any regrets in music it's that you know i didn't go all in that you could have stuck it out long enough or something well, like that yeah. maybe you know i don't really know you know like i never really had anybody who believed in my music as anybody of influence who believed in my music as much as I believed in my music. And in order to, you know, quote unquote, make it, whatever the hell that means, you need somebody with money who thinks that they can make money off of you. And no one ever thought that about me. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, I've never, as you know, uh, <laughs> my, 
my music is is kind of just like like we're we're just doing it for for fun, right? You know, and it's it's and it, we're doing it for the local thing that we love yeah, so much. Yeah, but you know what? Um, if I I, I know now, like yeah. if if I ever made it in music, I would have totally been a manager, and I would have invested in a lot of people, and I could I could probably give you a, a dozen names that I would say, yeah, I'd take a chance on that guy, and Dust Hat's one of those names. You're all good looking. You write smoking hot songs. You got you have fashion sense. You got the sex. You got the smile. You got the style. You know, and uh, Dust Hat's a great. They're a great band. Not everybody can play the roof of Cafe Nine, and you know, blow the roof off the roof. I don't know. You know, that's enough about me. But, yeah. uh, but or my or our band. But um, well, I mean, we're jumping ahead here. But but yeah, like who inspires you now? I mean, the things that you say about. Max Omer and I would say the oh, same. Yeah. It's just oh my god, guy's unbelievable. That guy's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. He's the Clash, you know. Um, I'm inspired by young people uh, coming up and doing the same thing. When I taught high school, I could have picked out the kids that when, when I thought in my mind, like you know, of oh, that guy right there. Um, in ten years, we're going to be hanging out in the same bars. He's going to be playing in a local band. And I was right across the board. You know, like, like recognizes like. So um, a few years ago, it seemed like uh, a bunch of people came to town to go to school. They all went to, you know, you know, University of New Haven or Southern, like Sam Carlson or Mike Voice or uh, Walker, you know, De Cholmeson, however you say that last name. And all these really creative people came into town they all had Roger Arnold as an engineering professor at uh, University of New Haven. Um, and to see, you know, people who are 24 and not 54 coming up and writing great songs and, you know, kicking out the jams, and I'm, that lights, absolutely lights me up, you know. One of my favorite bands on the scene right now is Brother Beauty, you know, and that's uh, Bobby Dykeman from Wolf Harbor, uh, Jeremy Cooney, who is doing solo stuff, and this other guy, Rob Galvin, who I don't know as well, but three songwriters who got together and, and made this band. And they played the Sunday Buzz at Cafe Nine last Sunday. And to me, they're like the band. You know, rough and tumble, raggedy harmonies, great songs. You know, and to see these, I'll say kids, these kids um, doing great things lights me up, you know, and says, yeah, you know, we're all... In, here in the Connecticut music scene, we're all part of this very long continuum, you know? And I've never felt more connected to a community than I have in the Connecticut music scene, you know? I there's feel just, the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think everybody does in a lot of ways. You know, there's no... It's not a competition thing. You know, like, oh, shit, that guy shouldn't have that gig. It's not like that, you know? It's all like, oh, man, I'm going to see you know, Brendan Toller's band over there, or I'm going to see Wolf Harbor over here, you know? Um, it's a real supportive scene, and, and people who are really appreciate art and music, you know? And Intergenerational, too, I think is oh, like yeah. key. Because in other main cities, I feel like you fall into the, I'm a 25-year-old punk, or I'm, mm -hmm. a, you know, the, the, the clicks. Right, so, right. Yeah. And although there's different genres, and like maybe certain clubs sort of cater to certain styles of music, and maybe there are cliques. Even the cliques get along. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like oh, there's yeah. no infighting yeah. or anything like right. that. You know? And that's inspiring too. Yeah. So in the 90s, what are the 
clubs in New Haven? Uh, Rudy's, where Three Sheets is now. Um, Rudy's was a great club. Toad's Place back in the day was unbelievable. I know it leaves a little bit to be desired now, but that book about Toad's Place is coming out, and it's really where the legends did play. And they gave locals such a chance to open up for the big names. And I got so many gigs um, at Toad's Place because every folk, like for a couple of years in there, every folkie that came through, I got to open for. Who? Arlo Guthrie, Joan Baez, Richard Thompson, Steve Forbert. Um, and I'm like, like, those guys are, are huge, you know? And I have an Arlo Guthrie story. Joan Baez kissed me right here, you know? And I would have never had that opportunity if it wasn't for clubs in the greater New Haven area and Connecticut that gave locals a chance, you know, and that was really, really instrumental and important because I would have never had a chance to play in front of an audience of 800, you know, other than opening for Arlo Guthrie. And, you know, his audience, they're like, oh, look, this chubby little folky kid, you know, um, who knows what's going to, maybe in 25 years, he'll be just like Arlo, you know, and they really gave you a chance and they listened to you and it was great, you know, it was really great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that clearly uh, was instilled uh, into you either by the folk scene or by James. I mean, an amalgamation of things, right? But, like, what is it about presenting somebody or turning other people on to a, a new artist that... What do you like about it? Well, like I said, you know, music speaks to people. And it's a connection between us. So if you and I are, you know, sitting at the sushi place and I'm like, oh, Brendan, I heard this great band, you got to hear them. And you're like, holy cow, you're right, you know? And you want to go out and buy everything that they ever wrote, you know? Um, that used to happen to me at Exile on Main Street. They had a, it's in Branford, but they had a satellite office in Hamden for a little while. Jeffrey Thunders worked there and Dean Falcone worked there. And I remember walking in around 96, 95, 96, somewhere around there, and hearing this stuff. And I'm like, Dean, who is this? And he's like, oh, Elliot Smith, you know? So I'm like, where are his records, you know? And there was like three or four, just like EP kind of things. And I bought them all, you know, because you heard it in the record store or like Cutler's on, you know, whatever street that is, College Street or Elm Street or whatever it is. You used to have listening stations and there were 25 of them. And you could walk around, you could put the headphones on and skip through the CD to, to test it out in the record store before you bought it, you know? And it was always at least 18 of the 25 listening stations had bands that I never even heard of, you know? Um, so that was really inspiring and, and turning people on to new music saying, I really like this and I think you're going to like it too, you know, and when they do and go on and years later and they're like, you know, I've had people say, you know, you turn me, you turn me on to John Prine. I would have never heard of, I would have never heard of John Prine if it wasn't for you. And I'd be like, oh, well, you know what? That makes me really happy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm glad I turned you on to John Prine. Everybody should know John Prine, mm -hmm. you know? So you got the first record and then then what happens um you know i do a bunch of gigs drive around a little bit um i could never really make a touring break even for me you know so i've had small you know small touring experience you know but uh you know the only way i could make it even come close to break even was be to just couch surf the whole way you know so that sort of limited you as to where, you know, you were playing gigs because you had to know somebody in the area. My you favorite know? part of uh, that Coen Brothers movie, uh, David Van Ronk, was mm -hmm. when the, uh, he, like, stares at the couch repeatedly. 
Yeah. And I was like, man, I know it all too well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've stayed in people's houses that I didn't even know, you know, um, on a cross country trip one time. I've played in a lot of states on the street, you know. Um, I think it was maybe 94 or 95. I went on a cross country trip. And I remember I was in uh, New Orleans and I was playing on the street. And this guy comes walking by and he's like, Oh, do you know, uh, you know, any talking heads? You know, I'm like, yeah, I know some talking heads. And I played a talking head song. And then his wife came up and we all started chatting. I wound up spending the night at their house. I slept with their dog on their, on their living room floor, you know, and, um, we ate crawfish at their kitchen table and stuff and just playing around and, you know, meeting different people and stuff. It was always really, really cool. Um, did you form a band at some point? You've had you've played with people over the years. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in I guess around ninety uh, eight or ninety seven or something like that, uh, me and a, a guy I knew named Chris Scally, we started to write some songs together, and we started a band called Four O Four, which was uh, named after the computer glitch. And uh, you know we wrote some songs and we and we played some cool gigs. You know we got to play CB you know CB's Gallery in New York City. And we played the Kendall Cafe in, in Cambridge, and that was a you know a cool club at the time. And uh, we never really put out a record, but we did some really great shows. You know, we opened up for the Lemonheads one time, and that was really cool. Wow. Yeah. Um. And so I'm trying to think. You know, you, I mean, obviously you started booking for uh, more places than. Uh... What was that first place called? Daily, Daily Cafe. Daily Cafe. Yeah, Steve Shapiro's. Place. Where did it evolve from there? Because eventually you're at like Daffodil Fest, and then I mean, all this stuff snowballs to like even today, yeah. right? I, I never really did. I never did any booking at the Daffodil Fest. That mm -hmm. was Robbie DeRosa, oh, okay. uh, the host of Homegrown on WDSU. Mm -hmm. um, I'm but glad we dispelled dispelled that myth. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, I was involved. I used to volunteer there. Okay, and I that's got, what I'm thinking of. And yeah. I live in Meriden, so I always right. I always got the gig. You know, he like he. He tried to have like 30% of the acts be from Meriden, you know. Mm -hmm. um, after a while, I'm like, you know, stop booking me. You know, I, I felt bad about it, you know, like I, doing it every year for 13 years in a row, you know. Um, I booked a couple of little series here and there. Uh, one at Brood Awakening, which is now a tattoo place on Route 10 north of uh, Quinnipiac University. And, I, you know, I did some booking here or there. Uh, these days, I, I book for the uh, Old Church Acoustic Series. And that's on Colony Street in Meriden. Describe that. You were describing it to me before. Well, it's a legacy series. Uh, yeah. It was started by Mike Wilcox, uh, who has since passed. And he started it in Rocky Hill at the Old Stone Church, you know. Um, and it's a traditional church coffee house. Uh, when I was coming up, kind of doing open mics, um, the church coffee house was the place. Every Universalist church had a monthly coffee house, and it was always well attended because it was five bucks at the door and, you know, the church got the money. So all the universalists would come and the ladies would be crocheting in the back and they would have, you know, a meatloaf dinner and things like that. And uh, this is that style of coffee house. It's a traditional church coffee house. So the uh, calendar goes from September to May. It's three performers a night, uh, once a month, and half-hour sets real fast, you know, and a cheap cover, you know. And you get to hear some people, you know, in a really, really um, listening environment. Like people are, like they hang on your words, you know. Um, so when you're 
a, a folky songwriter type or you know you write lyrics or you know you just want to be listened to and not at a bar room with a tv over your head or something like that um church coffee houses were the place to play it was a place where you knew that you would be heard and you would always sell merchandise you know because guaranteed somebody would hear at least in your half hour set even if it was one song man they would buy your cassette for five bucks you know mm. so it was a great way um to become uh accustomed to playing in front of an, an audience a listening audience so it turns me on to be able to provide that for other performers you know who don't necessarily get a whole lot of opportunity to play for a very quiet and very appreciative listening audience mm. and then there's the loud audience at sunday bus well, you know, I mean, you can't, in a bar room... You well, who I should say you are the MC of, and, and you book that a little bit, right? Um, I've done a lot of the booking. Yeah. yeah. A lot of, you know, uh, Paul's done some, Fernando Pinto's brought some acts in for the Sunday Buzz. Um, you know, so there's been other people who, who've booked it. But I booked a whole bunch of them in the last, you know, however many years it's been going on. Um, and in a bar, you can't tell people to be quiet. It's a bar. They're there for beer and camaraderie and... To hang out with their friends. That's the scene, and, man. And to yeah. hear a couple of tunes. Yeah. And all that's positive, you know? But even at, um, even at a club like Cafe Nine, that's a music room before it's a bar. You know, it's not like playing, you know, a bar that has music. Maybe your first gig. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> like Christopher Martin's maybe. It's not necessarily, you know, cover bands play there. Right. You know, it's not necessarily right. a, a place for original music. Yeah. So even when um, people are loud at, the, at Cafe Nine, um, it's still a music crowd, mm -hmm. and that's that's the difference, I think. That's right. And then, I mean, it. How did how did the local band show come about? I mean, it was like probably natural evolution, right? Because James Velvet hosted it. James and Rick Allison hosted the local band show for. Describe Rick Allison for our listeners. Uh, um. I, um, I'll, ch I'll choke up a little bit because um, he's uh, my benefactor. He's my mentor. Um, he's like Sam Shepard to me, you know. Uh, Sam Elliott, you know, uh, big fluffy mustache, um, a zen, crazy zen master, um, loves birds, you know. Like he's just an absolutely wonderful human being who doesn't take any from anybody because he doesn't have to you know what I mean he seems self-actualized to me um, Walt Whitman used to say that uh, I've never met a man who was truly awake how could I look him in the face and sometimes that's how I feel about Rick Allison I can hardly make eye contact with the guy because um, he's fully awake to me you know and he's accomplished so much Against what I'm going to just probably say, a lot of difficult odds within the scenes that he ran in. Well, you know, and he's done a lot of things that people don't know about, you know. Um, I'm not sure if he still maintains his website, rjallison.com. But um, when I was growing up, I remember this because um, I remember the voice. And it was, <clears throat> White Diamonds by Liz Taylor. You know, and I remember that commercial when I was a kid, and that's the voice of Rick Allison, you know. Um, 
and I remember it. Like, it's it stuck in my memory, you know? And I'm like, when I found out that was him, I'm like, that's you? He's like, yeah, you know, Liz Taylor sent my kids to college, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I was like, hell yeah, man. I'm like, I remember that, you know? I, I, even as a kid, I, I probably imitated that voice, you know? And he's that guy. He's that guy. Yeah. He'll tell you that it was all luck. He stepped in shit when he got, you know, those first voiceover gigs. And it snowballed, you know, until, you know, um, it's holding a Gumby statue and it's got like a tie on it or something like that, maybe a, like a clown nose, but he's got an Emmy up there, you know what I mean? Or whatever that is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. So he's, he's the real deal. Yeah. Um, can you give us a, when did the local band show start? Uh, depending on who you talk to, it's either 88 or 89. Um, mm -hmm. Because of certain lifestyle decisions, I don't think they know exactly when it started. Um, but uh, it started with James Velvet, you know, and they had a song. Pushing it on PLR? Um, no, I think that was Rick Allison who got it on PLR. Okay. But right. James Velvet was in a band called the New Haven Radiators, and they uh, had this great song uh, called, and it only had one lyric. It was, relax, take off your slacks, you know. Bam, bam, you know, like a, it was like a Green Onions kind of instrumental tune. And uh, Rick Allison was like, oh, man, this should totally be a theme song for a radio show, you know? And they invented the local band show. And it's been on WPLR in New Haven since about 88 or 89. Wow. So, yeah, then how did you take on a co-host role, I guess? Um, when James died in 2015, uh, they were doing a radio tribute, you know, so the local band show uh, did a tribute for James Velvet and WPLR gave them an hour for it. And they got a bunch of people to, you know, give in sound clips and stuff like that. And I was invited to uh, Rick Allison's studio. Uh, it was me, Johnny Java, and Rick Allison. And we all talked about James. We played his music. We played the clips from people and their remembrances and stuff like that. And then uh, after that, uh, Rick Allison called me on the phone and he said, he said, don't answer now. Think about it. Um, the show must go on. James would want it that way. Would you consider, you know, co-hosting the local band show? And he didn't get the words out of his mouth before I said, I'm in. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. in, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's an honor and it's a privilege. And I feel the weight of responsibility uh, to James and Rick. Um, to do a, a good job, you know. Um, I sit in James's chair, and my notebook is on his music stand, and literally his portrait is over my shoulder, you know. So when you walk into the studio, I feel like my friend is there, you know. And it's a good way for me to not only um, remember him, um, but continue his legacy of supporting local bands. Mm-hmm. And you work with Cygnus a little bit, right? Describe yeah. what that is and how it's, as much as you know. Um, Gary Gahn, uh, who lives in Trumbull, a, a local music enthusiast and a music enthusiast in general, was a disc jockey at Cygnus Radio a long time ago. The guy who owned it uh, died, and they were going to fold the station. And then uh, Gary said, don't do anything yet, you know? And he called like five of us, and... Uh, we took over the bills and we kept it going. So Cygnus Radio is now based in Connecticut. It used to be sort of based in Ohio. And um, we have a couple of disc jockeys, uh, like one from Chicago, one from, you know, uh, Austin, Texas. And 
we do great shows and it's a, you know, we're fully licensed and all that stuff. So we don't just play local music or unsigned acts. We can play anything we want. And we have a, you know, a funk show and a poetry show. Uh, Rick Allison is kind of like our anchor store. He does a daily show from Monday to Friday. Um, and it's been really great. You know, it's another one of those things that I get to do in music that, uh, you know, lights my fire. Mm -hmm. Were you in any, I'm only asking this question because one of those Dean Falcone tributes we did. Mm. Were you in any bands with Jim and Dean at some point or filled in or anything like that? Uh, Jim, as in James Velvet? Uh, Jim Balga. Oh, Jim Balga. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, however, I did play uh, Cafe Nine one time where uh, Dean played electric guitar for me and James played the bass. Oh, cool. And Johnny Java was on drums and my buddy Chris Scali was on electric guitar. Um, so it was like a fully fleshed out folky Frank, you know? Yeah. At that time. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you used to be a teacher. <laughs> what advice would you impart on somebody any age who'd, who'd want to start doing music? My advice is do it, you know? Um, don't ask permission. Don't ask forgiveness. Uh, don't pander to what you think people want to hear. Uh, right from your heart and throw it down like you mean it. That's right. Yeah. Um, am I skipping any eras or anything? Is there anything? I don't know. Um, anything you want to talk about? Well, you know, like we, we mentioned the continuum of music. You yeah, know? right. Like, and all the great music that's come out of Connecticut, you know. And every decade, even before I got here, like, you know, every decade, since, you know, in the still of the night, you know, um, there's been great music coming out of this state. And I don't think that that's by accident. You know, I, you know, Al Anderson would say it's something in the water, you know, but or maybe it's the pizza or the beer, you know, I'm not really sure. But um, this is a magical place. And, you know, we've all complained about the scene from time to time. But it's a magical As place. As any scene... Yeah, that has that. You yeah, know? sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it's not New York. It's not cutthroat like New York. It's small and it's intimate and people know each other. It's real communal. And this is a special place uh, to make music. And someday it'll happen where we'll be like, you know, Minneapolis or Athens, Georgia or Boston, Massachusetts or one of those places that all of a sudden take off. You know, it's going to take one band to kick through the door and a bunch of other people will run through, you know? That's how, you know, I, I guess in Athens it was maybe R.E.M., you know, that kicked through the door and made it sort like in a national sort of scene. And then the B-52s ran through and the Indigo Girls ran through and a bunch of other cool bands ran through. And that's what will happen around here. I'm still waiting for that to happen, you know? I had high hopes, and in my time it was either Miracle Legion or Mighty Purple or The Gravel Pit, you know? Um, that I would have all thought, awesome bands, all yeah. awesome bands that I would have thought, you know, if I was that bazillionaire, you know, I would have put my money behind any one of those bands and, you know, made them stars, you know, um, I would have thought it was any of those that could have, you know, made a little bit of a national splash so that the rest of us could, you know, ride the coattails. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Every time I'm like, not necessarily like depressed, but I'm thinking like, mm, like, 
okay, this is this is it. This is the scene. Like, this is fine. It's all right. And something new just comes, sneaks up, and mm. just totally knocks you out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot more than it's inspiring. It you know? really is inspiring. To see people, I'm 35 now. To see people that are 22 doing it right now I know. is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. And it happens continually. You know, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I, I, I'm cool, man. Are you cool? I'm, I'm great. This right. is amazing. Yeah. Um, buddy, this is a real nice place you got sitting here. Um, so I hope that, uh, I hope, excuse me, I hope local bands take the opportunity to come down here to Westport. Imagine what else happens in Westport. You know, right. Um, but this is a really cool joint and you're expanding the, the footprint of the Connecticut music scene. That's what we're trying to do. You're doing it. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. That was great. That was my chat with Frank Rutelli. You can buy his music at his Bandcamp site. Here's a brand new track to close out. Here's Frank Rutelli with Muddy Rivers and Shandy Lawson in their new trio, The Bargain, playing Thursday afternoon, July 16th. It was raining hard I'm on the L.I.E. On a thick and muddy summer Thursday afternoon July 16 Driving along Trying to get back home I got tickets to the show With my baby on a blanket in the meadow Does my wandering eyes see But a flash, a flash in front of me The one from that crazy dream The one I hoped I'd never see died Thursday afternoon July 16 Red lights hot and blue lights cold I wonder how things happen in this world Red lights summer and blue lights snow I'll remember this moment when it's my turn to go 